following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 2nd, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the COVID-positive Justin Turner's maskless World Series celebration and star Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence missing games because of his own positive COVID test. We'll also speak with WNBA player Renee Montgomery, who opted out of the 2020 season to work toward social justice reform and is now part of LeBron James's More Than a Vote campaign. Finally, we'll revisit Ruth Shalit Barrett's story on rich parents pushing their kids into niche sports, which The Atlantic has now retracted in full. It's a journalism scandal, baby. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen, the host of Slow Burn, season four. Also here in D.C., it's Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic and the bane of journalistic fabulists everywhere. Hello, Stefan. Nothing a bunch of journalists like more than a journalism scandal, is there? It's true. You know, we can get into this in a bit. But I was thinking, you know, it's obviously not a low stakes thing for The Atlantic or for Ruth Shalit Barrett. But it's nice to have like something that we can talk about that doesn't feel like the fate of the world is uh, resting on it. Just a nice low stakes scandal. Feels very before times. Yeah. And certainly like whether a squash player gets into Georgetown is uh, is low stakes. Then we'll talk about that too, because Georgetown doesn't have a varsity squash team. <laughs> With us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn Season 3. And now, we're happy to report, the host of the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6 on the LA Riots coming to you in 2021. You're on deadline. Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Hey, good morning. It, that, that assumes we make it to the end of 2021. You know, be careful about making assumptions that that, that end of the year happens because we have a lot to go through before now and then. That's a fair point. But I hate to be very, I don't mean to be dark like that. I'm really sorry. I think that I'm <laughs> supposed to be a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah, let, let me pivot that to say that being a two-time Slow Burn host, it's kind of like racking up Academy Awards. Two-time Slow Burn <laughs> host Joel Anderson with us. Well, what could I say? I'm a glutton for punishment. We're excited, man. Every time that people try to say something nice about you this morning, you're always just like <laughs> spinning it into the most like pessimistic negative take. This is good I mean, news, what do you Joel. want me to do? Do you want me to talk about being the fastest 10-year-old? You guys don't, you know, like it when I, you know, spend too much time being <laughs> self-ingredizing. So, I mean, I'm just trying you're to... Just- you're Be just humble. in the mood for self-deprecation. We get That's it. That's right. Big humble this one. But thank you. I'm very excited. I get to work with the people I like, love. Um, this is a project that is very important to me. And I thought about it even when we were working on Slow Burn 3. So That's more like it, man. Thank yeah, you. In, yeah. In all seriousness, I'm very excited to get started on it. Does that sound... Is that, be- that was That's excellent. Good. I don't know if it's true or not, Joel, but that was excellent. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be authentic here. Yes, I'm very excited. And I'm, I'm glad I'm here and I'm, I get to do it with you guys. All right. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. The big news at the beginning of last week was the Dodgers' Justin Turner getting pulled from the deciding game of the World Series because he tested positive for COVID-19, then coming back on the field without a mask 
to celebrate with his teammates when the Dodgers won it all. The big news this weekend was Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence missing the Tigers game against Boston College because he tested positive for COVID. With a freshman in Lawrence's place, Clemson barely beat BC. And right after the game, Coach Dabo Swinney announced that Lawrence will also miss this Saturday's game against Notre Dame, one of the biggest matchups of the college football season. Joel, we'll get back to Justin Turner shenanigans in a minute, but let's start with Trevor Lawrence. He was one of the leaders of the We Want to Play movement in college football back in the summer. And back when he was leading that charge, he argued that players would be less likely to get COVID if the season actually happened because they'd be motivated to, quote, take all of the right precautions. So do you think he was being naive at that point? And do you think that we should have sympathy for him? Should we look at him as a victim? Or given that he's one of the most prominent college athletes of 2020, he's going to be probably the number one pick in the NFL draft in 2021. Does he bear responsibility for his actions here and being one of the leaders for having college football? Yeah, well, I'm torn on this. And and first and foremost, I should just say I hope Trevor Lawrence is okay and that he gets healthy and will suffer no long-term health problems as a result of his infection. That's the most important thing here. But Trevor Lawrence is 21 years old, which is old enough to do pretty much everything you want to do in this country except rent a car without financial penalty or run for president, right? So, Can I interrupt just to say that as part of his statement in August, he said, we are adults making decisions for ourselves. I mean, yeah, he said it himself, right? I think Trevor is smart. He's on a college campus. He has access to all of the necessary information, just like the rest of us. And I definitely think Trevor was like a lot of people who love football over the summer. He was willing to say whatever it took to get the games back, even if it meant overlooking or even fudging the facts about safety and transmission. And I mean, to his point, he said something at the time when he was part of the We Want to Play movement that, you know, players would be safer on campus. Well, look, how many institutions have done a worse job of containing the virus than colleges and universities in general and college football teams specifically? Like there's basically been outbreaks at most of the major college football programs. We've got LSU, Oklahoma State, Wisconsin, and of course, Clemson. And in many college towns, the spread of the virus can be directly traced back to campus, like Texas Tech and Lubbock. Yeah, this is not a coincidence. It's like college college football and the kind of excitement and enthusiasm and like partying around college football that's instigated a lot of this. They're hosting super spreader events. And, and I also think... Trevor, in some ways, fell victim to this collective delusion we have about the virus that we can mostly continue our old routines as long as we wear a mask and go through protocol theater. But again, your protocol is only as strong as your weakest link. And I sound like a broken record when I say that, but I I just don't know if it's possible for them to think that this is safe because of, A, all the misinformation that's out there and just our general inability to be on guard 100% of the time, even if you're trying to protect yourself from the virus, it's just really difficult. And there's going to be these sorts of breakdowns. And here we are, Trevor Lawrence missing Notre Dame. Well, what this exposes, I think, is the folly of the thinking that predominated on campuses and and, and on teams earlier in the summer, you know, in that, in that we keep going back to Trevor Lawrence's statement from a few months ago, but he said, without the season, as we've seen already, people will not social distance or wear masks and take the proper precautions. I mean, the response to that is you shouldn't need a season to take precautions (laughs) against getting sick from a rampaging pandemic. And the politicization of 
these precautions is something that college football actively participated in. Trevor Lawrence got on the phone with Donald Trump, as did Ed Orgeron, and Trump used it as part of his own political theater to say that he was responsible for getting football, college football back again. So I think everybody's complicit here, and the least surprising thing is that people are testing positive. Dabo Swinney, the Clemson coach, said in April, America would kick this thing right in the teeth. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing funny about that. Is that before or after he took that private jet, you know, to vacation in Florida? Yeah, he took a private plane to vacation around then. He did it once and said he was going to do it again for Easter. When he was criticized for it, he said, it doesn't matter what I say or what anybody says, there's going to be criticism. I could say the sky is blue and somebody would be as, as mad as anything. He thinks the virus is NC State, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be, even though I framed the segment this way, it would be a mistake to put Trevor Lawrence in for more criticism than his coach or, or any of these coaches. Or athletic directors or university presidents. I really think that we should linger on that Dabo kick the, the thing right in the teeth because I think the fundamental weak link of any of these plans and any of these protocols is college football coaches. Mm-hmm. Their attitudes yes. towards the world and sports and their ability to understand and the relative importance of these things. And let's you know move to Wisconsin here for a moment. There have been, based on a Wisconsin State Journal story that I, I was reading on Monday morning, 22 confirmed cases, including the head coach, Paul Christ. Christ did not wear his mask properly during their first game of the season against Illinois. There is now an outbreak among the Illinois team, and there's some speculation about whether the virus could have spread from Wisconsin to Illinois during the game. And like, you obviously, I can't sit, you know, maybe somebody can figure it out at some point, but we can't say where the outbreak started or how it got transmitted. But we can say with certainty that the coach was not modeling good behavior for his team or for the people watching on television or for anybody else, that there was an outbreak in Wisconsin that it's now spread to Illinois. And, you know, we talked when the Big Ten decided to start. And they were talking about, oh, we're going to have rapid testing. And, you know, basically that if any protocol was going to work in this situation, it was going to be that one. And again, the weak link here is football coaches, football programs. A protocol is only as good as the people implementing it and the consistency of that implementation. And it was naive to think that, oh, we have rapid testing, that means that nobody's going to test positive. And so, you know, do we think that they actually thought it was going to work? Or do we think that they didn't think it was going to work, but it's what they needed to do to get the season back underway? It's actually a testament to how stupid all of this is that we haven't even really seen these coaches take a lot of criticism for failing to manage the virus among their own teams. I mean, they're the ones setting the protocols. They're the ones that wanted to come back. They're the ones that say that they can handle this. And, I mean, it's worth noting that in the vast majority of states in this country, college football coaches are probably the highest paid state employees there. So they yeah. should bear a lot of responsibility for this. But somehow- well, we're going to study the film, Joel. You know, we're going <laughs> to go and we're just going to work really hard to correct these mistakes and practice this week. Right, exactly. I mean, again, Dan Mullen, a guy who 
two weeks ago wanted to fill out his stadium had to miss a week because he got coronavirus and they had an outbreak on their campus. That's the Florida coach. That's the University of Florida coach, right. And so, yeah, I mean, the thing is, you're right, Josh, that the coaches are, are the weak spot here. They don't necessarily take it seriously. They're not modeling great behavior. But again, Trevor Lawrence is 21 years old, and I can't help but think that he was, if, if he didn't do it himself, other people did it for him. He positioned himself at the forefront of the hashtag we want to play movement over the summer. And it was clear that amongst all the concerns listed, that the primary one was playing, right? They had a list of demands that included the desire for universal health and safety procedures for all conferences. Uh, did we get anywhere near that? Does anybody remember? Like, I mean, I, d- I don't think that's a thing that happened. So beyond playing, you can't really even argue to me that they accomplished anything with that movement, but that was because Trevor Lawrence intentionally, along with Justin Fields of of Ohio State and some other players, co-opted what was a much more labor-centered movement in the first place, just so they could get him back in the field house and get him back on the field. As soon as the focus became playing again, all of those slash request demands went out the window. I mean, it became clear that the emphasis for everybody, for coaches, for universities, for students, for fans, for athletes, was to play. These labor issues are have been secondary for decades for college students, for college athletes. So there's nothing that would have convinced me that this was going to 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 occur now simultaneous with the demand slash desire to play. And everybody reverts to form. You know, Debo Swinney said, you know, we'll certainly miss Trevor, but this is an opportunity for other guys to step up. We're excited (laughs) about competing against a very good BC team on Saturday. You know, go Tigers. That's what matters. It's go Tigers. So next man up also applies during a pandemic. Can I ask you all a quick question? Did you all want Clemson to lose against Boston College too? Because I sure. I think that I want them to lose because of coronavirus, because I think it just I, I want them to suffer for some reason for this. And I don't I can't explain it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Boston College is playing in the middle of the pandemic too, but I was rooting for them to lose because I want them to acknowledge that the virus ultimately is kicking them in the teeth. You know what I mean? Like I just But I I think we did dodge the situation there, which would have been the like horribly annoying conversation about like whether they should still make the playoff because mm-hmm. Trevor Lawrence was uh, was missing and they're they missing their their best player. Yeah, that would have been like a, a deeply annoying conversation to have. I mean, I always root for Clemson to lose. Though. Well, that conversation could still happen, can't it? If they lose to Notre Dame, I would have been excited. I mean, the coronavirus is part of the landscape now, so if you miss a game yeah. because of coronavirus, I mean that those are the rules you agreed to play. But that's an argument that I'm willing to have. But I understand <laughs> that other people are not. <laughs> Let's pivot to Justin Turner and the Dodgers and. Major League Baseball, the statement that MLB came out with after Turner came back out on the field to celebrate was incredibly strong in directing all the blame towards him and none towards themselves. While a desire to celebrate is understandable, Turner's decision to leave isolation and enter the field was wrong and put everyone he came in contact with at risk. When MLB security raised the matter of being on the field with Turner, he emphatically refused to comply. Um, Kurt Streeter wrote a column for the Times, which notes that Turner has not apologized in the, I guess it's now almost a week since since this happened. Major League Baseball really hasn't apologized. Rob Manfred 
hasn't. And I also thought it was interesting, Stefan, that the LA Times ran a piece that was a collection of reader mail, and the vast majority of people writing in were pissed at Justin Turner. They weren't like defending him reflexively because they're they're Dodgers fans. It seems that there's been a kind of universal recognition and understanding that what Turner did was selfish. And people comparing it, you know, like in this LA Times piece, people saying like, you know, I wasn't, I'm, I'm not able to go to school. My kid isn't able to go to school. I wasn't able to go to a, a funeral. And this guy's like, oh, I needed to celebrate with my teammates. Like, screw you. Again, file that under least surprising things to happen. I mean, Turner going back out onto the field. I'm not quite sure what baseball could I was have surprised. Done. I'll concede. I was surprised that he was out there on the field with without a mask on. I mean, it's a pretty messed up thing to do. It is a very messed up thing to do. But again, it shouldn't be completely surprising that he did it. The impulse to be out there and him feeling fine, right? No symptoms. I feel great. Maybe it's a false positive. That's what we've been getting. Um, I can see all sorts of internal self-justification for acting the way that he did. Now, the question is, what could Major League Baseball have done differently to prevent him from going out there? They could have escorted him out of the stadium. Is one chained him to a wall? Could have done. They could have chained him to a wall. That would have been <laughs> made for excellent video. But they could have forcibly had him removed from the premises, and they obviously didn't do that because they didn't think that that was necessary. They thought that. I assume they thought that you know he would behave rationally, having been informed of a potential health risk to himself and to anybody that he comes into contact with. But can't you just envision the internal conversation? Hey, I've been playing all this time. What's another couple hours? You know, I made it through eight innings. Why couldn't I have played the ninth? This doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure also part of this, Joel, was a feeling that you've got to be kidding me. Major League Baseball touted its protocols, but ultimately those protocols weren't very, they weren't foolproof. They weren't like the NBA's according to testimony that's come out since the World Series ended. Yeah, I mean, you know, Joe Kelly, uh, also a UC Riverside alum, uh, is a, in a callback to our episode last week, you know, said that basically it's not a bubble, that it has the pretense of a bubble, but that where he was staying in Las Colinas, which is in a suburb, it's in Irving, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Um, and he's staying in a hotel where, you know, the public was right up on, you know, basically his his patio or his balcony out there. So, yeah, they weren't really isolated, but we knew all this, man. I mean, you know, we knew that it was going to happen this way. I think, though, that I was rooting for, like, in retrospect, I wish the Dodgers had lost Game 6. I wish that Blake Snell had been able to <laughs> pitch a few more innings. So we could have seen them lose Game 7 in part because of this. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like we need... I, it all comes back to you, like, rooting again, <laughs> rooting yeah. against yeah, the COVID I'm, teams. I'm rooting for the virus, <laughs> like, like, like they say, they sport, <laughs> like uh, the sports journalists, I guess. Because I just thought, I think that, like, it's deeply irresponsible what we're doing. And it's... If the original belief that giving Americans all of this sports entertainment might help us deal with the reality of the pandemic, and maybe even encourage us to stay home, we can say without a doubt right now that was an abject failure. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, like none of that has happened. If anything, it has given us the illusion that things are as close to normal as they were, and people are inclined to go outside and do all these other things. And so, yeah, of course, Justin Turner went back and joined the field because who in the hell is telling people to stay home or to wear a mask? Like, we don't have these sorts of like 
mandates nationally, regionally, or whatever. And that's why we're in the damn problem we're in right now. So yeah, of course, Justin Turner thought that he was above the rules, right? But do you take any comfort in the fact that the people writing into the LA Times thought he had, you know, what, what was in the wrong? It's it's not like everybody was cheering him on and saying, yeah, d- go out there and be with your team and, <sighs> right. and don't no, worry. And I, th- I think ultimately, uh, Josh, what Justin Turner did muted the enjoyment for some Dodgers fans that mm. it tarnished it because what he did was so clearly insane that it cast a shadow over anyone who was watching that celebration and the trophy presentation and seeing this guy take his mask off, sit down for a team photo next to his manager who had Hodgkin's lymphoma 10 years ago, had to have been appalled. And the closer, Kinsley Jansen, you know, has had heart issues and had COVID earlier and like had to miss a couple weeks. Joel, I... I would. I don't think it would be fair to characterize your facial expression as skeptical. I think it's beyond <laughs> two feet <laughs> beyond skeptical. You seem unconvinced. Yeah. No. I mean, I just. You know. I. You know. I. The people that write in are people that are motivated. You know what I mean? Like I just whatever you. You know the people that that, that write into media. Skewed sample. Are so, oh, yeah, there are a, a lot of a lot of people in Los Angeles. I would say most people that are abiding by protocols, and I'm sure I, many I, of those are Dodgers fans, and they were I disgusted would, to see what happened. I mean, I guess I don't know. I mean, also, I just you know, you take the sample of like baseball fans. Let's expand that out then too. I mean, that's not. <laughs> That, that's not necessarily representative either. But you know what? Actually, uh, just as a quick aside, when I thought of Justin Turner, I thought of Masai Ujiri, uh, the general manager for the Toronto Raptors, who was accosted by a sheriff's deputy while trying to go on the court after his team won their championship. It is just like, oh, Justin Turner doesn't have to play by these. He doesn't have to play by the rules. You know what I mean? I was like, thinking that exact same thing. Like, wouldn't it have been awesome? If MLB security, instead of being like, well, they wouldn't, he wouldn't listen to us. They just like fucking tackled that dude to the ground. Like he was a, <laughs> like he was a pitch invader. Like he was just some fan yeah. running on the field. who didn't belong there. Just like, you know, get him out of there. You're right. Like a streaker or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, yeah, man, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how people feel about it. But I mean, the thing is, it doesn't make a difference like what we think the majority of people feel because we can look at the results. We can look at like what's happening in our society right now, in our country right now, at the rising numbers. And clearly, I'm not going to say that people are responding to this like Justin Turner, but like there's just some sort, we've we've failed to control this virus. And part of that is because we just are not willing to accept that the virus is supposed to slow down our lives. It's that we're supposed to adjust to it and not make the virus, you know, bend our will and kick it in the teeth like Dabo Sweeney. Let me just button this up by saying this all started in sports when the NBA shut down the entire league because one athlete tested positive. And we've come to the point where an athlete who is positive goes out and celebrates with dozens and dozens of people in public. It also started with Rudy Gobert playfully like touching all of the reporters' microphones because he was feeling sick and wasn't that a, a funny joke. And he realized way back in March not a joke. that that was not a great thing to do and like apologized for it profusely mm-hmm. and seemed to have learned his lesson that some of his fellow athletes have not learned months upon months later. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. A few months ago, Atlanta Dream Guard Renee Montgomery became the first WNBA player to announce she would sit out the 2020 season. There's work to be done off the court in so many areas in our community, she wrote on Twitter. Social justice reform isn't going to happen overnight, but I do feel that now is the time and moments equal momentum. Let's keep it going. Montgomery is an 11-year WNBA veteran who has her own nonprofit and has previously raised money to help the Black Lives Matter movement. She's now part of the More Than a Vote campaign, the group co-founded by LeBron James that includes athletes such as Patrick Mahomes, Draymond Green, and Brittany Griner. Renee, thanks for joining us. We're recording on the eve of Election Day. So uh, what sort of work have you been doing for More Than a Vote to prepare for Tuesday? Oh, you know, just talking to people, getting people excited, I think. You know, there's almost this voter fatigue, I feel, happening where people are almost just ready for it to be over, ready to see the results. But I don't want people that haven't voted to feel that fatigue. Like, you can feel fatigue after you've already cast your ballot and that you feel that you've had your voice be heard. But we all got to just make sure we get to the ballots. Like, we have to make sure we cast our vote. So that's kind of what I've been banging the drum um, I have a November 2nd pep rally tonight with my own campaign, Remember the Third, and that's just getting the passion to the polls. So it was very important, uh, I know, to you and to NBA players to actually have some something concrete when you said you want to work towards social justice reform. What does that actually mean? And the thing that's really stuck out to me is that More Than a Vote has recruited 40,000 poll workers. Yeah. And so to just say like, all right, we want to encourage people to vote. We want, you know, there to be social justice. That's one that's one thing and that's really important. But when you can look to that, that seems like it'll materially affect the way that election day works for lots of people. Especially, you know, we see all these stories about the long lines and the problems that people have with voting. Like that's a a thing that um could potentially change that and help that. Absolutely. And you know, there's there's one thing to just want to do something, but to solve an actual problem, that that's amazing. And more than a vote has done that in a sense of we know, especially here in Georgia, we know that voter suppression is something that we faced in 2018. It's something we, we face and we continually face. And so State Farm Arena was one of the first arenas opened. And I think that sets a good tone being here in Georgia, where we understand that that is reality here. And, and the thing about the arena polling is they didn't just, like you said, open up all the arenas and like, all right, cool, here you go. No, they opened up the arenas and then had people that were working the polls. So I think just full circle, it was a complete concept that was that was fulfilled and it was a goal achieved because it solved an actual problem. Yeah, before you go, Stefan, I just wanted to say I voted at Nationals Park here in D.C. Okay. It, was, it wasn't the closest polling place for me, but I wanted to go just because... I thought it would be cool to vote at the baseball stadium and just so I would be able to talk about it on the podcast. But like it ran super smoothly here. Perfect. And it just felt like it was, you know, it it felt like for a moment I was in a world where like voting was actually 
you know, easy and encouraged and was like yeah. supported by the entire like infrastructure of the place I was living. And I took a photo of like the thank you for voting on the center field scoreboard. And it felt really good. And to your point real quick, you know, this is an unusual circumstance because it's a pandemic. You know, there's not very I don't know if there's going to be very many more times where there'll be arenas that will just be open, no concerts, no sports teams, no nothing. So that's why I want people to understand that this is an abnormal circumstance in itself because of the open space. And so for more than a vote to see that opportunity and to capitalize on it, that's what's so cool. And it's a cool experience. I hear that from everyone where uh, they went to State Farm and just to see the arena transformed like that. And you went to Nationals Park. It's a nice experience as well. No reason that that can't continue in the future, though. I mean, if we're talking about reforms, that could be a lasting reform, couldn't it? The the making access easier for voters is is obviously at the you know central to what what more than a vote wants to do and and what other people are doing. Yeah, but you know the thing is that's that's the arenas that would have to take that hit. So it's the government's job to make sure that there's adequate polling locations, mm-hmm. adequate lo- uh, workers. So for the arenas right now, it was easy because there was no one in there already. Next year, you might be asking them to shut down when they could have a headliner there. They could have Beyonce in the building that day, you know, and that's that's their that's their prerogative to do that. So the thing is, the government and the arenas maybe do need to to work together to figure out something. But just having no one in the gym, that's not that's not a normal thing that arenas like because they still got to pay. Right. You don't have to t- obviously tell us who you voted for, but can you tell me what your personal <laughs> voting story was this year? Where did you vote and how did it go? And Yeah, so I've actually pretty much since I've been a voter, I've been absentee just okay. with the, the sports lifestyle. Typically being a WNBA player, we play in the WNBA and then two weeks after that we go overseas. So just with that short amount of window, I never usually like to take any chances and I didn't want to take any chances and switch anything up while it was election year. So next, uh, next election, I think I'm going to be going and casting my ballot in person or maybe not, but yeah, I've just been absentee almost my, my whole voting experience life. Renee, when you decided to sit out the 2020 season, what were the motivating factors for you and what sort of crystallized that the election was going to be something you wanted to focus on? Was it the connection with the other athletes? Was it them reaching out to you? Or was it the sort of, you know, sort of growing um, awareness of how important this was going to be? I think it was a little bit of all the above. You know, um, when I first was even thinking about opting out, honestly, election wasn't the the first thing that came to the front of my mind. It was what was going on outside my door. You know, it was what was going on in the streets. That was the first thing that came to my mind. It was the protest. It was it was the murders. It was Ahmaud Arbery. It was George Floyd. It was Breonna Taylor. Those were the things that that got me to the point where I'm like, yeah, I think I do want to opt out. And then as I started to get more into it, when I joined More Than a Vote and when I started to talk to more people, I'm like, well, you know, an important place to start is voting. If we're talking about things changing, we're talking about positive change and a new normal. Well, then we have to start at the, at the starting blocks, which is voting. And so that's kind of how where I opted out turned into, OK, well, let's focus on the election as well. And you were on that call with Kyrie Irving, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was. Well, can you tell us about because I'm just because obviously there was a lot of skepticism of Kyrie and his motives, right? Um, when that came out. So like what was sort of your impression of that phone call or what, or what Kyrie was trying to get to, across to people? Yeah, my impression of that phone call, I was so impressed. Like, I couldn't believe, first of all, that this many NBA players were on the call. 
and not just any NBA players. It wasn't the guys that, you know, six through 15 on the roster. It was your starters. It was your all-stars. It was your favorite athlete on the call. So I'm sitting here like, wow, okay. So the NBA is is doing things. Like I was very impressed that that many players felt that passionate to even get on the call. Because if anybody knows dealing with athletes, that's not easy to get a large group of people on the same call at the same time. And Kyrie did that. And I think that what his vision was got misconstrued a little bit. The main thing that I heard out of him was that he wanted to be a positive catalyst for the community, for have the NBA be a positive catalyst for change. And that's that's what the line of talk was, it seemed to me. Uh, when I got off the call, I then realized that, you know, there were there was media on the call. The call got leaked and that people had a lot of negative things to say about it. But I just didn't see the call that way. I, I really did. And I saw a lot of a lot of men and not just not just black and brown men. But I saw there was white men on the call. There was a lot of athletes on the call that were trying to figure out what they could do for their community. And, and they had different opinions on it. And of course you might, some might think it's better to go play. Some might think maybe we should be here on grounds. I don't think anybody was wrong. So that that's what I'll just take from the call. I don't think that there was any wrong person on the call. I just saw a lot of men that wanted to create change for the good. So the co-owner of the Atlanta Dream, your team is running for Senate in Georgia, Kelly Loeffler. She is a Republican, has talked about being the most pro-Trump senator in the United States. She said that the WNBA players should wear American flags and that it was racist to have Black Lives Matter on the court and on jerseys. Um, You wrote on Twitter, you asked her to have a conversation with you about this, and she declined to do so, which I'm just going to say what I think. Um, I know that um, (laughs) you guys have have wanted to focus more on supporting Reverend Warnock rather than speaking Kelly Loeffler's name, but I'm just going to say that um, the fact that she wouldn't speak to you, I think, gives away the game, that it's a performance. She doesn't actually care about having dialogue and actually learning from the players. It's all about just projecting an image of being this like hyper, rabid, conservative person in a kind of politically strategic way to try to get in this runoff. And that I don't respect her for that. Didn't she say she was more right than Attila the Hun? Yeah, I mean, it's all just trying to yeah. throw red meat to the base. I I don't yeah. get the sense that it's necessarily even who she really is. We actually had her, Renee, on this podcast back oh, really? seven years ago before she didn't talk about politics at all. We just had her on because she was like this new businesswoman who had bought into the WNBA and was talking to us about growing the league and about, you know, making sure that the league is financially successful. Super, like, normal conversation. Yeah, that's why... So to that point, you know, a lot of people ask me so many questions about like, well, what was it like before or not? And when I tell people it was pretty normal, we didn't talk politics, like people have a hard time understanding that. But that that wasn't the line of conversation the same way yours wasn't seven years ago when I met her three years ago. We just talked about sports and we had a, a women group owning ownership. And that's the things we talked about. And, you know, and a little bit to that point. I've been telling people as much as we're talking about change and as much as we're talking about the new normal and as much as we're excited for how things are going, there's a large group of people that don't want change, that want to keep the same old, that don't want anything different. So to to just to put things in perspective, you're always going to have two sides of the coin. And so, of course, if you're feeding your base or you're talking to people that might that you think it would appeal to, you're going to you're going to appeal to the fact that there's a large group of people that don't want change. 
How do you think about the fact, and like, I don't want to be partisan. I don't want to come off like I'm being partisan. But the reality is that in this country, it's Republicans who want to put restrictions on the vote, who seem to be moving in that direction. And it's just, as you know, a journalist, I don't want to get too all like high and mighty, but it's your responsibility to tell the truth, not to go down the middle on things. And so what? how do you feel is your responsibility? Because with more than the, a vote, it seems like the emphasis is really on telling people go vote, not telling people who to vote for. Um, but also you can see the reality just as well as I can see the reality. So, so how do you think about um, how to message this? Yeah, it is the go vote message because you, you know, for whatever reason, you can't be mad at someone choosing what they think is best for them. That's what makes us a democracy. So if you have athletes and you have different people, you know, for like controlling what the democracy thinks, then I can see a problem with that as well. You know, like I can see a problem with, okay, well, if all the celebrities decide to pick this person, all the athletes decide to pick this person, well, this person's going to be our president. I can see a lot of people having a problem with that. So to that same point, the messaging is go vote. Because hopefully you allow like what what my thought process is with Remember the Third is we give people all the information we can give them. We tell them everything we see. We tell them everything going on. We tell them the facts. And to your point, we don't we don't pick what facts to tell them. We tell them the facts. What are the facts of your city? What are the facts of the voter suppression going on in your city? Because that's those are factual things. If you only have one place that you can go to cast your vote, that's a problem. You know, so we talk about the facts and we let people choose what they choose. And so to your point, it has to be go vote. You, you can't tell people go vote because or go vote for this person because we think this. You have to allow people to, to come to that realization on their own. And hopefully that's what people have been doing, getting the messaging out, just putting the facts out there so that people can vote and see it for themselves. I think that does reflect a shift from what LeBron did four years ago, where he campaigned actively for Hillary Clinton versus what more than a vote, and his efforts have focused, have targeted uh, this time around. And as athletes, you run into this conflict, who you work for, who the owners of these teams are, very often they do lean Republican and make big donations to Republican officials. Up until now in your career, has that been a sort of an internal conversation? You know, should I be working for this person? Or if I'm, you're a free agent now, I'm going to pick a new yeah. team. Who do I want to work for? No, it's not a topic of conversation at all, because if you just look around at all the leagues, there's plenty of owners like, you know, there, it's not a lack of owners vote uh, donating to campaigns. So that's always there. And and just to go back and touch on a little bit what I said before, of course, athletes are like LeBron James campaigning for Hillary Clinton. That's his choice. And that's fine. My point is that I don't want to have a campaign where I'm telling people who to vote for. If I'm Renee Montgomery telling people that I want I want to vote for this person because that's different than me having remember the third of November and telling them to vote for a certain person. So just to put it in perspective, I'm my own entity. But if I'm going to do a whole campaign, I want it to be nonpartisan in the sense of I just want you to come here to get information and hopefully you make a informed decision. Um, and then to go back on the owners, you know. It's funny because even when the the incident happened with Donald Sterling, I, I wouldn't say that anybody was shocked in a sense of in the sports world. You know, like it, we've all seen owners who who wine and dine with people that you wouldn't think that they would be able to get along with. But for some reason, they do. Typically, money is the, the common denominator in a sense of it's rich people games. And so 
I don't I don't think that any athletes would be surprised if they found out their owner donated to the Republican campaign or are friends with some of these uh, some of these other Republican campaigns or Democratic for that nature. I think it's a part of the again, it's the the actual person and then the entity. And sometimes they they clash. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes they clash. Well, let me follow up on that. You've got an opportunity now to make a choice about where you want to play. Does it matter more now than it might have five or you know ten years ago at the beginning of your career? You know, it'd be hard to say because look, you go play for it's almost that grass is greener. Like so, you know, you you know basically we can see what, what the grass looks like in one place, but you might go somewhere else and not know what they're doing as well. And and that's my point. There's a lot of owners that make business decisions for themselves. And you can't at a certain point you have to look at it the same way I look at like entities and then the whole thing. And and you would love if all the brands collided and it was on brand and they were one person and they were this way with you and they were this way when it came to politics. But realistically, I just I don't know if that's that's an option. Well, you're from West Virginia and your mother is an educator. Is that right? Yes. OK. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that that was the inflection point for your political awakening or like is there any, you know, what one thing that kind of got you going in this direction? I would say the one thing that got me going in this direction was understanding that that you can't do it without without the election. You can't do it without legislation. You can't do it without the government. And I think a lot of people there's a lot of mixed emotions about that. A lot of people don't feel the need to vote because they're like, nah, we got things we got to fix in our community. There's so many different things we have to work on. There's so many different things we have to focus on. And I'm like, yes, I agree. We have to focus on all of that, but we have to vote too. Like, so I think that that's the kind of the, the, the awakening if to put it uh, how you put it. But I would say just, just realizing that if we do want change, it has to start at the ballot box. Like that's, that was the awakening. Like we need change right now. And, and right now we're coming up on an election. So that looks like the most logical place to start for me. Renee, thank you for coming on with us. If you want to learn more about More Than a Vote, you can go to the website at morethanavote.org. And if you get this podcast in time, I think you can join Renee at her Election Eve pep rally at 7 yep. o'clock Eastern. Is that right? That is correct. Um, 3rd of Nov on the 3rd of Nov on Instagram. But we'll be streaming live 3rdnovember.com. Yeah, we're just trying to have fun, get people excited and keep people informed. That's what's up. All right. Well, thanks again, Renee. And we hopefully will have you back and we can talk about your new team or whatever the hell is going on that's not election <laughs> stuff next time. All right. Yeah, I'll be back. All right. Appreciate you. Thank you, guys. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about the sports figures who are endorsing Donald Trump, among them Brett Favre and Jack Nicklaus. We'll also discuss what former Auburn coach Tommy Tuberville's players are saying about his MAGA on steroids Senate candidacy. To hear all that, you have to be a Slate Plus member. Just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Do it now. 
Two weeks ago, we discussed The Atlantic's story on rich kids sports and college obsession written by Ruth S. Barrett. Josh was the first journalist to figure out that the S stood for Shalit, and on the show, we flagged Ruth Shalit's history of plagiarism when she was a young writer for The New Republic in the 1990s. After the show, Washington Post media critic Eric Wemple turned up myriad errors, exaggerations, and other problems with the 6,000-word story. On Saturday, The Atlantic posted an extraordinary 800-word editor's note in which it said that Shalit had deceived the magazine and that editors were wrong to have made the assignment. And on Sunday, it retracted the story entirely. We now know that the author misled our fact-checkers, lied to our editors, and is accused of inducing at least one source to lie to our fact-checking department, the magazine said. Josh, this has been crazy and in hindsight, I guess, predictable. But what's clear to me is that everything that's been exposed, non-existent backyard Olympic-sized hockey rinks, overblown fencing injuries, a made-up sun, implausible quotations. My favorite is the parent asserting that Georgetown had gone cold with a squash scholarship when, as Eric Wemple reported, Georgetown doesn't even have a varsity squash team. All of those were in the service of two things, to make the story even more salacious than it naturally was, and to give journalistically unethical coverage to a subject who, it turns out, joined Shalit in efforts to deceive the Atlantic and its readers. All right. Cracking the knuckles. Going in. Journalistic scandal time. All right. Let's start with a kind of backstory here. Before we talked about um, this piece on the show a couple weeks ago, I talked to a lot of people um, within Slate, colleagues, about like how to approach this once I figured out that this was Ruth Shalit Barrett. And on the one hand, you don't want to say just because she has this particular history that this story was necessarily bogus. Like, that's not fair to her and not fair to The Atlantic. And yet, the fact that the byline was Ruth S. Barrett um, was obscuring the history of who this person was. And I thought it was important to flag for listeners and people who might read the story that this was a Ruth Shalit Barrett joint, that this was not, you know, some, uh, this was a story that should potentially be read skeptically given this person's history. And so we talked about a lot was the right way to do it. And we ended up being, I think, pretty minimalistic mm-hmm. on the podcast. And we're, we did not make any kind of connection. We did critique the story, but we didn't say because this person is this person, then the story is like necessarily wrong or bad. We like just critiqued it kind of at face value. And I don't think in retrospect, that was a mistake. Like, I think we should have been careful based on what we knew at the time um, to make the, the connections that we did end up making. But I did want to flag that when I wrote The Atlantic spokesperson reaching out for comment before we aired our segment uh, a couple weeks ago, I said to them, you know, given her history of acknowledged plagiarism and accusations that her reporting has at times been error-laden, slanted, and fabricated, I wanted to reach out to them and see if they had any comment on the decision to assign her this story. And... What I said on the podcast was that they had told me this feature went through our usual, extremely rigorous editing and fact-checking process, very kind of boilerplate. What I did not say at the time was that there was an intermediate step between when I got that answer and in which the first response that I got was, can you explain how this is relevant? 
mm. to the conversation you're interested in having about this feature? How is it relevant that it was written by Ruth Shalit Barrett? And I think that the, I don't mean to like blame the spokesperson here. I certainly don't mean to blame the fact checkers. These are like the people that have the least power in this uh, organization. But I think it is that response is indicative of an attitude you know, it's hubristic. It's like, okay, this is a person who has history of journalistic malfeasance, but we're the Atlantic. We fact check things extremely thoroughly. And, you know, it's, it's just like the, the, the fact that they seem defensive, uh, that someone would even ask, like, if you hire this per, if you, if you assign a feature to this person, you should at least expect that people are going to ask questions about that decision and you should be able to defend them and not act like it's unreasonable to have those questions asked. And now it looks like that, you know, that response looks even worse in retrospect now they've retracted the story. But even if the story wasn't retracted, I still think that that response isn't appropriate given the the decision. You should understand what you're, you know, the, the choice that's being made and be willing and able to defend it. Right. And the, the very first thing that they needed to to defend, the very first thing that you discovered was that they were concealing who the writer was. Can, can I ask her a question? Byline. Can I ask a question about that, Josh? What made you notice something amiss in the byline then? Because I just, I'm just like, how would you even get to, oh, that's Ruth Shalit, you know what I mean? Like I, well, I, I can I can say what I did, and Josh did the same thing, but he was just okay. more perceptive. I Googled her because I'd never heard of this person, and this mm-hmm. was a six thousand word feature in a in a subject area that we're all pretty familiar with, and I wanted to know who she was. She's got a website, um, and I just didn't put two and two together. Um, Josh was was savvier um, in his googling and figured out what the S stood for. Yeah, I just Googled her name and somehow it came up in my my Google search who it was. Like she's written under Ruth Shalit Barrett. She's written written under Ruth S. Barrett. And obviously back in the 90s, she wrote under Ruth Shalit. And, you know, given that I worked at the city paper, that's where I started my career. David Carr wrote a piece about her um, when he was um, at city paper back in the late 90s. That was a, a pretty deep dive into her um, and, you know, what she'd done at, at TNR and the reasons that she got kind of drummed out of journalism. And I actually mentioned this to Eric. Eric Wimple was my boss at, at City Paper. Um, that was my, my first job. And I said, like, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting that the first people to, like, notice this and catch on to this were, you know, me Eric, and then when Eric first like tweeted out, it was like Tom Skoka, who I also worked with at City Paper, Clara Jeffrey, who is at, at City Paper. It was interesting to me, like kind of how the the thing expanded out. Like I mentioned it on the podcast, Eric mentioned it. It was like a pretty small circle of like very kind of like media, you know, and a sort of subset of like DC media. I mean, I think yeah, I, like, I think I saw the Ruth Shalit. Barrett on her website or on the byline of another story she had written in the last 10 years, but it didn't, you know, the light bulb didn't go off in my brain because I wasn't in Washington or covering that stuff 25 years ago. Yeah. So it was like, it was like first just a couple of people, then it like expanded out to just like people that had worked at the city paper who like knew, knew about her. And then like once the more kind of stuff came out about like stuff that was wrong with the story that, you know, stuff that was made up in the story, that's when it like expanded out 
and became a much bigger thing because, you know, it, I guess there's always a question when it's like media stuff and journalistic scandal. It's like, it, is it just like navel gazing? Does anybody care? And it takes something I think pretty big to break out of the bubble. And there is like a kind of schadenfreude aspect. I certainly don't, uh, I'm not like gloating. I'm not like happy that this happened to the Atlantic, but I think, you know, when the story kind of gets this big and there's like an enormous editor's note attached to it, like the day before the election, it's like the most read piece on the Atlantic website is that like Titanic editor's note, like people like, you know, get off on this. It's like it, it, there is a kind of a factor of like wanting to like, um, you know, revel in the, you know, the, the scandal and the, the negativity of it. Yeah, I, you know, I guess I'm not normally in the habit of Googling bylines unless it's, you know, I don't know. I, I think... Well, if you were looking for somebody as like a potential guest to try to get in contact with them, like... Fair, fair point. That's fair. I, and I guess like, I, you know, it, I came to that story, my interest in that story, I came to it much later than you all did. I was like, oh God, we're, we're going to be, I'm reading about squash over the weekend, right? <laughs> uh, and, then, and then I was like, oh, okay, this is really interesting. But, you know, in, in retrospect, you know, I do wish that I'd said something two weeks ago um, about something I call the, the drive-by racism in that story. Um, you know, and in a story that for the most part has very little to do with black people. Um, th- there's the line in the story, you know, 30 years later, in a twist worthy of a Jordan Peele movie, Fairfield County has come to resemble Compton and the monomaniacal focus on sports. And it's such a racist aside that I can't help but wonder how it made it into the story in the first place. What's the purpose of this analogy? Has Ruth Shalit Barrett ever been to Compton? What does she know of Compton? Um, I don't know of Compton as being the sort of place where there's monomaniacal focus on sports. They've obviously had some great athletes and some good teams from out of there, but there's nothing about Compton that screams athletic powerhouse but the presence of black people, right? And it's also worth noting that today, Compton is majority Latino, uh, not black. So that doesn't preclude that there may be a monomaniacal focus on sports there, but it probably doesn't fit with whatever pathology she was trying to prescribe to the people of Compton there. Um, she just so, needed yeah. a stand-in, Joel. Right. She needed an example that everyone could recognize. She could have said Odessa Permian. She could have said Odessa, Texas. She could have said Katy, Texas. She could have said... You know, some suburban DC community. You know what? She she could have said Bethesda, Maryland, because that's where people are obsessed with sports. The the notion that that is somehow exclusive to basketball and football is Mm -hmm. a a racist trope in our society. You know, and her story proved that that's, you know, the the parts that I think were, you know, she talked to a lot of people on the record. um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of the conclusions and the observations that the piece makes are completely dead on. the story goes off the tracks in two places. One, where she uses anonymized sources and quotations. And two, when she make, made these kinds of racial leaps. She also quoted like a 32-year-old um, paper by uh, Harry Edwards at the University of California um, that's clearly out of date. And it wouldn't surprise me if Edwards has disavowed these ideas mm-hmm. in the years since then about the single-minded pursuit of sports in black communities. Yeah, There was also I mean, a I, Poop Dreams reference too in there, snuck in there later in the story. 
I live in Palo Alto. It'd be I'd be hard pressed to find a community that's more monomaniacal about sports than Palo Alto. There's all sorts of fields, te- youth teams playing all you know throughout this pandemic. You can go to any corner in this in this city and find people out there playing sports. So yeah, I you know I I take issue with Dr. He- Edwards's findings here, and I I would bet this was a long time ago. I'm sure he's had a chance to reconsider it since then, but. Um, what do you guys think of the part of the editor's note where they said we decided to assign Barrett this freelance story in part because more than two decades separated her from her journalistic malpractice at the New Republic and because in recent years her work has appeared in reputable magazines. We took into consideration the argument that Barrett deserved a second chance to write feature stories such as this one. We were wrong to make this assignment. However, I think I would not have assigned this this story to her, um, not because... I want to punish her, um, but just out of a self-protective instinct. And I think what The Atlantic found is that if somebody is going to deceive you, then no matter how many fact-checking resources you devote, um, they said they spoke with more than 40 sources and independently corroborated information, but they were relying on her and relying on this um, woman, Sloan, who had deceived them as well, it, it seems they were relying on them Ooh. to tell the truth. Which I'm, I, I think the thing that's really kind of, I mean, this just seems like a lot of effort to go through all of this. You yeah, know what why? I mean? Like, I don't to, understand to, that. To talk either. to a source and be like, hey, man, by the way, you may get a call, uh, just make up a son. Or you know, like, it, that just seems absurd. And even uh, Ruth Shalit says it um, to the New York Times that that anecdote didn't make the story better. You know, she got no like. It would have been much easier to have just found another family or another focus in what, the story. If they, so, if they weren't willing to either go on the record or to to be identified in a certain way. See, I would argue that it did serve Ruth Shalit's purposes to invent a cover for a source because it made the source more comfortable publishing, uh, being you know having their story told mm-hmm. in this magazine in this story. So I think it did advance the story a hundred percent, and that's what happened with a lot of these things that have been proven to be false in this piece. Well, the the errors in there, like, you know, the fencing injuries were made to seem more severe. The Olympic size ice rink was made to seem bigger and, and more showy. All the, the errors that have been pointed out all move the story in one direction, making it splashier, making it showier, making it more salacious. And let's not forget you know, when the story came out, if you go back and look at Twitter and you sort by date, people of all sorts of stripes and ideologies were sharing the story enthusiastically and loved the fact that it made rich people look vain and craven and stupid, loved the kind of salacious quotes fed into attitudes that um, people have about, you know, rich parents and their idiocy and their competitiveness, you know, those attitudes, which are, you know, probably fair. Um, And that's the reason why I think this is bad journalism, even apart from any of the, um, you know, the the errors and the, the fabulism. It just feeds, it doesn't teach you anything. It feeds into preconceived notions about how people are and how people behave. It's all kind of like gawking, 
and um, kind of laughing at people. It doesn't complicate anything or make you think differently about anything. And people are and were inclined to believe it. And so, you know, that's another reason why I kind of question the assignment and the way that the story was approached. I went back through the piece to see if there were any other red flags. And every, every anonymous quote felt like it was written by a screenwriter. Um, they felt almost preposterous. And knowing now what we know, I'm inclined to believe that those quotes were embellished or invented. You know, wow. being who you are is not enough. It might be enough in Kansas, but not here, one Darian parent told me. We all started drinking the shakes with the spinach. One Nobody's morning, ever I had a shake with said, spinach in it. That couldn't be true. <laughs> this st- yeah, but there's this elaborate, you know, anecdote about how we stopped, you know, we, we wanted these kids to, you know, we wanted to get them off of the treadmill and just do this the right way during quarantine. Um, you know, girls were, the girls were lying on their trampoline looking at shapes in the maple trees. Um, and there was more and more of that in this piece. And, and you know, now we can say somebody saying Georgetown has gone cold, but he may get the last spot at Columbia feels like something that, you know, would be invented. Josh, you were the one that said there were a lot of, you know, before we talked about this on the air two weeks ago, that a lot of the quotes felt too good to be true. And guess what? You know, Georgetown doesn't have a squash team. <laughs> and Columbia's got one of the best ones in the country. Well, I it's a it's it's a shame that if if the lesson that people take away from this is that it's like bad to give people second chances. Like that's not the the lesson here. The lesson here is that if somebody um deceives their editors, then you shouldn't, they, they shouldn't be a journalist anymore. It's not like she shouldn't like have a life or mm-hmm. have a, a job or be able to make a living, but like not this job and shouldn't take the opportunities to write features away from people who haven't been intentionally deceptive before. Like that's the lesson. It's a pretty narrow one, but I think it's an important one that isn't always heated. Um, and I would also say that I think it's possible, I'm not sure, but I think it's possible that if Eric Wimple had not pursued this with the zeal and the vigor that he did, that she would have gotten away with it. I really do. I think that, you know, when we did this segment two weeks ago, I thought some of the quotes sounded too good to be to be true. We looked into things a little bit. We were able to confirm that the people were at least real. Like some we were able them. to find we people. Some. Yeah, we were able we to find people that matched the the descriptions, but like we didn't have the time to really do an in depth investigation. And how many media reporters are there still out there in the world whose job it is to look into stuff like this? Not very many. And so if Eric didn't know about her history and didn't take the time, I mean, he did a lot of work to like try to track some of this stuff down. Like I really think that she could have gotten away with it. It wasn't inevitable that this was going to all come crashing down in the way that it did. 
Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls, After Walls, After Balls. And we were just talking about uh, the reasons that Ruth, Shalit Barrett should or should not be given a second chance. And Stefan, one of the like big stories from the first stage of her career was this long piece that she wrote for the New Republic about affirmative action efforts at the Washington Post, which was criticized very intensely at the time, both for its uh, alleged inaccuracy, but also for its racist assumptions and beliefs about affirmative action. And one of the people who was discussed at some length in that story was Kevin Merida, right? Yes. Now the editor-in-chief of The Undefeated at ESPN. So in that piece, Shalit suggested suggested that other people were suggesting that Kevin Merida, who's one of the great journalists of, uh, of our age, had gotten his job at the post undeservedly and had been promoted beyond what his uh, capabilities were. And as David Carr pointed out in his piece for the City Paper, his piece about Shalit, that, you know, Kevin Merida had earned his spot to uh, a degree that like vastly exceeded Shalit's own accomplishments at that point in her career. Like what had she done to, you know, deserve becoming one of the most like prominent feature writers in America. And so, like, look what's happened to both of them since. And we can report that Kevin Merida just received the NABJ Lifetime Achievement Award. You mentioned him being editor-in-chief of The Undefeated. He's a great guy, a great journalist. Yep, here, here. And we should honor him with our afterball name this week. Joel, what's your Kevin Merida? My Kevin Merida is Billy Tubbs. So I first heard of Billy Tubbs in 1988 back when he was coaching one of the best college basketball teams in the country. And I, of course, felt a natural kinship with Coach Tubbs as the reigning fastest 10-year-old in the country. So then he was head coach of the University of Oklahoma, which boasted future NBA players Mookie Blaylock, Stacey King, and Harvey Grant. The Sooners advanced to the national championship game that year, where they would have to play Big 8 conference rival Kansas for a third time that season. Now, remember, Oklahoma had won their two previous matchups that winter, both by eight points. But this would be Danny Manning and the Miracles' big night. The Kansas Jayhawks have beaten all odds. They have lost more games than any champion in the history of the NCAA. And Bedlam reigns here in Kansas City as the Jayhawks beat the Sooners 83-79. to I mean, come on, more losses than any other NCAA champion in history. Also, it just didn't seem fair to me that you could beat a team two of three times and they get to call <laughs> themselves champs. But that's how it worked, and it still does. It was as close as Billy Tubbs would ever get to a national championship in his 31 years as a head coach. But even though he never got that title, he will forever be remembered as a champion at TCU, where he coached from 1994 to 2002. I happened to be there for half of Coach Tubbs' stint, and let me tell you, 
it was probably the most entertaining, most rewarding time to be a basketball fan in Fort Worth. He won 20 or more games four times at TCU, leading the Frogs to their first NCAA tournament appearance in 11 years and their last for 20 more years. During that sad stretch of hoops that followed the Tubbs era, few people cared because by that time TCU was good at football again and TCU was in Texas. As they say back home, basketball is just something to do between football and spring football. But Coach Tubbs aspired to much more than that, even in Texas. And I was reminded of his commitment to making basketball fun when I learned Sunday that he died at the age of 85 after battling with leukemia for the past five years. Unlike so much other college basketball, where teams like robotically pass the ball around the perimeter for 30 seconds before settling for a contested shot at the rim, Billy Tubbs wanted fast breaks and a full-court press. He was adamant about putting on a show. We called it Billy Ball. Let's go back to 1998, 10 years after his best-ever team came up short against Kansas in the finals. This was Coach Tubbs' fourth season in Fort Worth, and he had built a team that was the best show in town and in the 16-team Western Athletic Conference. The Frogs led the nation in scoring that year at 97 points a game, winning by an average of 20. Of course, winning and winning big wasn't something that TCU or its opponents were accustomed to. Earlier that season, TCU beat Delaware State 138-75. The leading scorer of that game was a guard named Mike Jones, who finished with a school record 51 points. Mike Jones played 37-40 to 40 minutes in that game, and TCU was still pressing with four minutes to go. The Delaware State coach called the performance, quote, an abomination of basketball. Tubbs said, that's called winning. Little more than a week later, TCU forward Lee Nalon set a new school record with 53 points in a win over Mississippi Valley State. But that's just how Coach Tubbs wanted TCU to play. Fast, furious, and with absolutely no regard for the opponent. During a game at UNLV that year, as the running Rebs came out for their laser light intro show, Coach Tubbs handed his players sparklers that were lit when UNLV turned the lights down. Anything to get in his opponent's head a little bit, you know? And I can't verify if this particular quote is accurate or not, but a thread on KillerFrogs.com recounted his frustration with all the fascination with the Big 12. Now, remember, TCU had been one of the four old Southwest Conference schools left out of the merger with the Big 8 Conference. It was, in many ways, a demotion from the big time. Coach Tubbs didn't want to hear any of that. I don't see why everyone's so worked up over the Big 12, he said. They have to go to Columbia, Missouri, and Manhattan, Kansas. We get to go to San Diego and Las Vegas. Las Vegas. I've been to Manhattan, Kansas. It sucks. I can't say I disagree. But anyway, in that 1997-98 season, the Frogs went 14-0 in conference play. They lost to 20th-ranked New Mexico in the WAC tournament, but clinched their first NCAA tournament berth since 1987. And in as unbiased a way as I can say this, TCU got screwed by the selection committee. The Frogs, who were ranked number 15 in the AP poll, got the five seed in the Midwest Regional behind seven lost Purdue and six lost Ole Miss, just to name a couple of teams. That set the Frogs up against an underseeded and very dangerous Florida State team that knocked them out in the first round of the tournament. That was pretty much the last time many of us thought about basketball in Fort Worth for a while. TCU football quickly found its footing under first-year head coach Dennis Francione, upsetting a freshman Carson Palmer in USC in the Sun Bowl that December. From then on, it was all about football at TCU. 
Coach Tubbs hung on in Fort Worth a few more years, but he was never able to match the success of that 1998 team. In 2002, he returned to his alma mater, Lamar University, in Beaumont, Texas, and coached for four more years. His final tally? 609 NCAA Division I wins. Good enough for 37th among the men's coaches. That's more career wins at that level than John Thompson, Gene Cady, and Pete Carrill, just to name a few. All of those guys are in the Hall of Fame, by the way, not Coach Tubbs. This is from 1989, a close game between Oklahoma and Missouri. The officials called a technical on Tubbs in OU because fans threw trash on the court following a foul call. So they called Coach Tubbs in to settle down the home crowd. RIP Coach Tubbs in Billy Ball. He didn't get a championship or into the Hall of Fame, but he put on a good show. And hey, when's the last time you said that about college basketball? I was worried you were going to go through that whole thing without mentioning Lee Nalon, but you got <laughs> oh, come in yeah. there. I bet Lee Nalon was listening to this be like, all right, I led the nation in scoring and rebounding, right? Oh, yeah. Did he lead the nation in scoring and rebounding? I wouldn't do that to him. We follow each other on Twitter, and he's a right. big part of my college experience. We both lived in Moncrief Hall for a little bit. so There you go. So shout out Lee Nalon. So, Josh, what is your Kevin Merida? A couple of weeks ago, the Tennessee Titans were down 30-29 to 29 to the Houston Texans late in the fourth quarter. The clock went below three and a half minutes, and the Texans had the ball facing a second and one. So they're in a good spot. They're up by one late in the fourth uh, quarter, second and one. Titans coach Mike Vrabel sent a 12th man out onto the field for his team, which, as you probably know, it's not allowed at any level of football. Uh, The Titans were penalized five yards, and the Texans got a first down. The uh, color guy for CBS, Rich Gannon, Said it was a big mistake for the Titans to give their opponents the first down. But Vrabel actually did it on purpose. He was taking advantage of a rule that stops the clock on any defensive penalty with less than five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. For the Titans, saving time on the clock was more important than giving up the first down. And the extra 40 seconds that they saved ended up helping them in the game. The Titans got the ball back. They scored a tying touchdown with four seconds to go, and then they won the game in overtime. You might recall that Mike Vrabel pulled uh, some clock shenanigans a few years ago, taking a whole bunch of consecutive delay of game penalties against the Patriots and Bill Belichick in a playoff game. This time, he wanted to drain time off the clock because the Titans were in the lead. And since it was before five minutes were left, in the fourth quarter. They just kept on taking consecutive delay of game penalties. And they actually, you know, that that helped them win that game. This is a coach who knows the rule book. The NFL actually changed the rules this past uh, offseason to make that maneuver illegal. So now if you have if if you did consecutive delay of game penalties, the clock just wouldn't keep running and running and running. You're not allowed to do that anymore. But sending a 12th man out on the field in the last five minutes when the clock does stop. On any penalty, that's still allowed. The NFL hasn't done anything to change that. And we talked earlier about like, oh, it's nice to have something that's kind of low stakes, this like Ruth Shalit scandal. It's nice to, you know, be able to focus on something that does that's not the election. This to me is the low stakes scandal that has been haunting me for nearly a decade. I don't know if you remember this, Stefan, but I did an afterball about this in 2013. When the same thing happened, it wasn't actually an intentional penalty taken by a coach like Mike Vrabel did, but there was a game, and obviously it harmed the Saints, and that's why it it, 
that I felt so aggrieved. But similarly, um, a penalty happened in the last five minutes of the fourth quarter, stopped the clock, and it hurt the Saints. And I was confused at that point, as I am confused now, about why the NFL had not fixed this and had not addressed the rule change. And when I asked people about it then, I asked this guy, Ben Ostro, who runs the website Football Zebras, and he didn't really seem that animated by it. I was like, <laughs> okay, if the Football Zebras guy doesn't care, then maybe I'm like off on my own here. And so then when it happened again, I talked to Nick Green, who writes about sports for us at Slate. And I was like, Nick, you got to write about this. And just stepping out here for a second, as an editor, this is not a good move by an editor. Like, we do not have writers to, um, writers do, do not exist to take on our own personal obsessions. They're not, we shouldn't send them out in the world. If I'm the only one who cares about this, I should not foist it upon Nick. But, you know, we're, we're all human, we're imperfect. I did foist it upon Nick. And he went out and he tried to get people to comment. And by the time he finally got somebody to answer, it was like weeks later. And then I remembered that I actually done an afterball about this seven years earlier. So I was like, all right, Nick, I'm going to like retract this. You do not have to, I, I will take <laughs> this back upon, upon my own shoulders. But before that happened, Nick actually got a response from Terry McCauley, who has um, refed three Super Bowls. He's now the rules expert on NBC Sunday Night Football. And again, like the other people that have been asked before, Terry McCauley does not take personal offense that the NFL has not changed this rule. He does not care about it as much as, as I did. So Nick asked him about what is the rationale for stopping the clock on a defensive penalty in the last five minutes of the game? And Terry said the clock stops because time is a critical factor in close games and helps minimize the amount of time the clock can be running without a play in progress. So the idea is we want to see as football fans as much football as possible in the last five minutes of a game. So we'll stop the clock. We'll preserve it. There will be more plays. All right, there's a certain logic to that. And then Nick asked him, it seems pretty clear that Vrabel did this intentionally to save time. If that was the case, then do you think that argues for the rule to be changed? And Terry McCauley says, in general, the competition committee is always concerned when a team is able to gain an advantage by committing a foul. However, when it comes into changing the rules, they will take into account the situation and how likely it is for it to become a regular occurrence. And he says, it's not likely that, you know, that there were particular circumstances involved here, that the fact that it was a second and one, that it happened between, you know, right, that it happened after the five minute mark, and that giving them the first down, which is usually not something that you want to do, was actually an advantage this time, because they were so likely to get it on second and one, they didn't want to just allow them to run off the clock in the process of getting it. Terry McCauley, three-time Super Bowl referee, is like, this is such a limited, narrow circumstance that we don't need to change the rules for that. And my response to that is bullshit. Like, Hmm. bullshit, you need to change the rule. And the problem is, the reason I take so much offense to this is that the fix is so incredibly easy. You don't need to add more than a single phrase to the NFL rulebook. And the only thing that you need to change is when the defense commits a foul in the last five minutes of the game, the offense has the option if they want the clock to stop or not. They can say, we want the clock to stop or we want the clock to wind. Just like there's an option of like having a 10-second runoff with some penalties and you can stop there being a runoff. If you take a timeout, you can tell I'm extremely excited and agitated Mm. about this. But if the fix is so simple as, okay, the defense wants to intentionally take a penalty, okay, as the offense, we're just going to say, all right, we just want the clock to run. Why, Joel, what's what's so wrong about that? Why Why can't we make this fix? 
How important was this game in 2013? It wasn't even very important. I was, okay. it, it didn't right. affect the outcome of the game. <laughs> it, it was just okay. the theory. It wasn't the a playoff the, game or anything? Or? No, it was just, oh. it was the Falcons though. So there is a, a rivalry. Oh, okay. But oh, just it's just, I was offended because the fix was so easy and yet mm. nobody seemed to care except me about implementing the fix. And now it's just me and Mike Rabel who have realized that there's a flaw and the rule book. And, you know, and, and he, it's, he's like kind of a white hat hacker. I feel like <laughs> the person who like points out to Microsoft or Apple, like you have a flaw in your code and they like, will you know, generally be like, all right, we'll fix it in the next release. The NFL's like, no, we don't care. We're not going to fix this. I just think Mike, Mike Vabel is really good at the gamesmanship. You know, if Bill Belichick did it. I'm sure he'd be praised for it and you know, whatever else. Oh, I think he's genius. Like to understand that, like that that's the thing it's like terry mccauley is like oh this is such a limited circumstance like there's no need to legislate it whereas mike Vrabel seemed to have an extremely good command of the exact circumstance in which you know what are the chances like one in you know ten thousand this right. would apply in a particular game he's like he's on it he's like all right we're committing a penalty now and the announcers didn't know what was going on his own players didn't know what was going on but he like got them a victory because of it yeah i mean that's really smart i you know Man, this is too bad if that's not the Houston Oilers, you know? <laughs> Stefan, you don't care. No. All right. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. Nah, not really. In his face. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. 